I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but, but really um, about uh, awareness of Hashem and, and really sort of trying to, uh, to, to have a, like a, an elevated, very palpable, very visceral relationship with Hashem. And um, I want to start just with, a, with something that happened to me, I, I guess, the day before yesterday. And, and use that as sort of like a springboard to go deeper into sort of like um, just, well, this will be a strange phrase, but it just to us, maybe better to relate to the mechanics of Hashem's um, presence, just the, the, the intimacy uh, in which he's involved in our lives. Um, and, and we'll go into more detail on that. But, but let me just um, start this way. So I was uh, early to work uh, on Friday. Uh, which is dangerous because that means that um, I have an option that I usually don't take uh, advantage of, which is going to Krispy Kreme Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> and usually, when when those occasions arise, I, I I win the debate and I don't go. But but this past Friday, I thought I'm I'm definitely going. So I went and and I got there and I I I got. My, my two favorite donuts there, which is the chocolate glazed cake donut, and then the, the regular, just the staple, you know, the, just the regular glazed. And um, it was kind of funny because when I got to the cash register, they were like, um, do, do you want the combo? And I thought, what's the, what's the combo? And they said, it's, it's a cup of coffee and two donuts. And I don't know why I found that intriguing, that it was a cup of coffee and two donuts. But I, I had already bought the two donuts. They just wanted to know if I wanted the coffee with it. So anyway, I, I didn't. So, and, and I thought, well, I'll just I'll work there because I had some work to do. And I'll just eat them there. And then I thought, nah, let me, just, let me just go to the office. I'll probably get more done there. So I took the donuts in the bag and I started eating the one in the car right away, the, the, the chocolate one. And um, got to a, a stoplight and, and there was a, a homeless man, you know, with a sign and a, and a you know, kind of a scraggly beard. And, and I, I thought, okay. So I, you know, I was in my car and I kind of called him over and, and he stuck his head in, in my window and I said, would you like a dollar or a donut? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, a donut. <laughs> and I reached in and it was like the warm one. It was right off the conveyor belt. It was like, and I was like, oh, I wish you had chosen the dollar. I, I, I kept that to myself. <laughs> and I gave, him, I gave him the donut. And, um, and, then, and then that was the end of that. And, and then I, I drove on and I... And then I, you know, I had a, a thought that, which is really why I'm telling you this, this, this story. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that I've thought every once in a while over the years, but it's, it's never, it's not always so primary in my, in my consciousness, but, but here it kind of, here it kind of was. And I, I just thought to myself, wow, what just happened? You know, I, I almost, I almost never go to, to, to Krispy Kreme. And I was actually going to eat the donuts there. But, but God just wanted to give that man a donut. That, that, was, that was this whole thing. God, and here, here's a guy who's like standing in the middle, like off of a highway by himself with like nothing, basically. 
And God just said, you know what? I'm going to give you a donut. <laughs> a nice, hot, like, delicious donut. And, and then I was so happy because I was, I was thanking God for allowing me to watch God feed him. Like that I was just able to witness God giving him food. And, um, and so that, was, that, that, that meant a lot to me. So, you know, so, so what's going on in terms of just the whole dynamics of that whole thing? Let's sort of like try to go deeper into, into that whole kind of episode. But, but really, that's just one tiny, tiny example. There's zillions of examples in our lives every single day and certainly throughout history. And, and let's, let's, let's get more into it. So I was I was privileged um, this past week. Um, my my great friend and teacher um, Rabbi Shlomo Katz sent me a, a teaching from Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach that I was able to uh, to to look over and and it made you know a, a big impression on me. Rabbi Shlomo was talking about um, awareness of God and levels of awareness of God, and he made a very interesting. Actually, the Torah itself makes this distinction, but I, I never really kind of saw it the way he presented it, which is to, to, to kind of break it down into levels. The first level being an awareness of God, which is which correlates with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And then a, a, the, a deeper awareness of God, which correlates with Moshe Rabbeinu. And in fact, if you say, well, wait a second, how can you make that distinction? I mean, they were all so awesome and everything like that. And that's all true. There, 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 there's no really ranking. But remember, the Torah itself says in the beginning of Parsha's Vayera, the second Parsha of, of, of the book of Exodus, of Shmos, Hashem says, himself says to, to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, I never reveal to them this name of mine, Yudke Vavke. So God himself is saying this. So God himself is pointing and saying very explicitly that there's a higher revelation of godliness going on in terms of this name of Hashem. And this relationship that's that's advancing, that's evolving in terms of God's interaction with the world. Okay, so now let's back up a second. So what is the what is the level of awareness of God that's associated with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? So that is basically just to make it super simple. That is just an awareness that there is a God. All right, just that God exists at all. And famously, um, the Medrash points out that Abraham Avinu, that Abraham, our father, looked at the world like a burning, like a building that was on fire, and and reflected on it and said, "Is it possible that this building doesn't have an owner?" So, so that that in itself is is an amazing thought and, and worth spending lots and lots of time on. But, but we're just going to go on. The, the main idea is just the recognition that, that, that there is a God, that this world comes from somewhere. And Reb Shlomo said something that I thought was absolutely fascinating, and, and, and I, I think I'm understanding what he was saying. I mean, he, he said it pretty straightforward. He said... Thank God in our generation, you really see that pretty much everybody knows that there's God. And he, then he said, then he said something, and this is the reason why I'm bringing it up, which was sort of a mind blower. He said, there are those people who don't. 
He said, but they don't really belong to our generation. He said, they're just around here to fix something. So I don't really pay much attention to them. And I thought, wow, that, what a fascinating way to, to like just understand like the world. Like, in other words, and if you think about it, it's really true. Most people absolutely look at the world and understand that there's a power. Whether they want to call it God or not, starts to get into <coughs> semantics and people's life stories and personal issues and things like that. But, but it's, it's been my experience as well, and of course he had far greater experience, that, that people get it, that there's a God, that there is a power, that, there, that, that that's real. And, and, and yet there are people from, you know, we believe in reincarnation. And, and people are coming back to fix different things. But those people aren't necessarily the headline. They're not necessarily the headline or where necessarily one has to focus their attention. So that, that, that in itself was a, was, a, was a really fascinating thought. I'll just tell you a P.S., I believe it was the Shpoli Zaidi, who is one of the great Hasidic masters at the time of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. And Rebbe Nachman, um, you know, had, had opposition in his time, as, you know, all of the great people of the world have had. And, um, and, and the Shpoli Zaidi explained at one point that the reason why he opposed Rabbi Nachman was not, God forbid, because he didn't understand that he was one of the greatest tzaddikim, but because he felt, and now remember, this is, these are the highest level conversations that we're talking about right now. When we're talking about Rebbe's interacting with other Rebbe's, especially when it comes to opposition and things like that, we're talking in ways that maybe we can begin to understand, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that we really understand what the with the with the dialogue is, um, so with that caveat in mind, the Shpoli Zaidi said that that the reason why he opposed Rabbi Nachman was because he understood that his soul was really needed for a later generation, and so he was giving him a hard time to 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 try to ensure that he would be around for the people who needed him most. And if you look today, the Rebbe Nachman's influence in the world has probably never been greater than today. And he's probably never been more needed than today. Because Rebbe Nachman understood the mechanics of, of consciousness and, and, and happiness better than probably anyone. And I heard Reb Shlomo say with my own ears that, that he was the most psychologically sensitive of all the Rebbe's. That he understood just these things better than anyone. And so, fascinating that this comment that was made about Rebbe Nachman, by someone who seemed to be giving him a hard time, right? That this person understood something like with Ruach HaKodesh, something that would be needed hundreds of years from then. That's, that, that, that's an amazing thing. So, so, among all of the simultaneous stories that God is telling in terms of our lives, in terms of history and everything like that, you also have the paradigm of just what is this generation and what does this generation need to accomplish? You know, we tend to think of our own personal lives and our own personal fixings and what the current state of political affairs of the world are, but we don't always think of it in terms of 
the paradigm of generations. And so this is just a way of understanding, uh, just a look at it in generations. And that our generation, the good news is, our generation basically gets it. Now they just have to be brought to a more refined level and to the next steps. But that means that you're working with a very promising, you know, fertile ground. We really are. Okay. So let's go on in terms of, back to what Reb Shlomo Karlbach was saying. So, so, so the first step, which is the, the level of Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, is the awareness that there is a God. But, but like we were learning the other week, and if you want to listen to that talk, it will go into more detail on this, I ended up calling it the definition of belief. If someone wants to believe in God, really, the, there's way more to it than just believing that there is a power that exists, that even made the world. That even, if you want to even take it to the next step, who even gave us the Torah? Like, a person might consider themselves a great believer. I believe that every letter of the Torah was dictated from Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu, which is true, which is great. That's a, that's a wonderful level to be at. But real belief involves even more than that. So, so Reb Shlomo said that when Hashem revealed this name, the holiest name of Hashem, what we call the fancy word, the tetragrammaton, right? The Yudke Vavke, right? This four-letter name of Hashem, this awesome, awesome revelation. That what Hashem was communicating to Moshe Rabbeinu was not just that he exists, but he was communicating to Moshe Rabbeinu the urgency of God's involvement and the urgency of God's presence. So let's, let's try to understand what that means exactly. You see, the name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, is a contraction of three words. Haya, Hove, and Yiyah, which would be translated as was, is, and will be, or past, present, and future. So, so there's an eternality to Hashem's presence, which is being expressed in this name. But if I'm understanding what Reb Shlomo is saying, he's, he's, he's actually zeroing in on one aspect of Hashem's name, which is the yiyah, will be. And showing how that really affects us in terms of our life and in terms of understanding what, is God, what God is doing right now, right here, this second. So I know we're not communicating yet, but let me, let me, let me just try to explain it better. You see, I went to the Peterson Auto Museum um, the other week. And uh, it's, 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 it's amazing, and, and I really recommend it. It's really, it's a beautiful place to go. And I know, you know, art is very subjective and, and all the rest, but, and, and I'm, you know, in terms of classical art, I'm really not into sculpture at all. Like paintings, especially like Van Gogh and modern, modern art, things like that. 
sculpture doesn't really do much for me, you know? Like, if you have like a, an ancient Greek bust with curly hair, I'm interested in the curls of the hair. Like, mm -hmm. that, that looks pretty cool to me. But I guess it also kind of looks like Van Gogh's brush strokes, actually. So maybe that's why I like it. <laughs> Mm. Not for the sculpture itself. But anyway, and there's other sculpture, I guess. I like I like uh, Calder's mobile. mobile. The, the, those things are kind of cool. But for the most part, I'm, I'm not crazy about sculpture. Um, but cars, classic cars, are unbelievable, I think, <laughs> in my opinion. They're magnificent sculptures. They're, they're magnificent, especially these cars from the, the 30s and the 40s these incredibly long cars that are like half of it, like they're like the size of a living room. You know, like you can't even believe it. And the curves in them, like amazing. They're, 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 they're amazing. And um, anyway, so this has a, 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 an amazing uh, collection of them in super mint condition, things that you would never see on the road, even in Los Angeles. Um, but standing before them, there is one part of the experience which is uh, disappointing, which is because the cars are all dead. They're just sitting there. They're lifeless. They're completely dead. And imagine now you're standing before one of these incredible sports cars, right? Like one of these Bugattis, like incredible, like they're like just like they're zillion dollar cars and they're gorgeous, right? Now imagine you're standing in front of one of them and there's a key in the ignition and it's turned on and the engine is vibrating and it's shaking and the car is giving off heat and it's alive and it's present and it's ready to go. Right? That experience is completely different. So this aspect of Hashem's name, Yiyeh, is not just meaning will be is not just that God is present and is filling the world. The engine is running. The God engine is turned on right here, right now. It's running and it's ready to move and it's ready to direct the world in any direction, every single moment. You see, this was a revelation to me because... There's something that we've been talking about um, for, for uh, quite a while. Um, we should probably all stand. So, um, so, so uh, so, uh, we just took out the Torah from the Ark. Um, so something that we've been learning up until now, which to me is like just the, the most fundamental way of understanding our lives and, and, and the world. And it's the answer to the question that, that everyone has, whether they're able to articulate it or not, which is that if there is a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer, quite simply, is that the world isn't finished yet. It's not done yet. And God made us partners with him in terms of finishing the world. And, and that's what it is. 
you know, I, I just wrote this movie about Mashiach. It's like this. I've just been working on it for a while and just finished just finished it. So we'll see what happens. You know? Yeah, thank you. And um, I showed it to someone who I, a rabbi who I have enormous respect for. And he had a great comment about it, which, thank God, I think is easily addressable. But there's sort of this climactic battle at the, at the end of the film. Kind of a Gogu Maga kind of thing, you know, in, in terms of current events. And um, he said, well, you know, my, my, my issue with what you wrote was that he said, he said, Mashiach is not a solution to a problem. In other words, it's not like there's a great war and then Mashiach comes and then good triumphs. Mashiach, which is, you know, shorthand, we're not talking about a person really. Mashiach is, which, is, which means the, the perfection of the world, is actually the destination, it's the destiny of the world. In other words, it may manifest itself at a horrible moment where it looks like every evil is going to triumph and then Mashiach rises up and then we have the happy ending. It may roll out that way, but don't confuse that with the idea that in essence that Mashiach is the solution to a problem. It's not the solution to a problem. It's the destiny of the world. Because when God, remember we always give this example, but I love it so much. When an architect envisions the world, or when, the, when an architect envisions, when an architect envisions a house, what, what, what he imagines is the, is the finished house. An architect doesn't imagine that he's standing in Home Depot and he's, uh, he's, you know, there's aisles three through five and there's a hammer over there and some nails over there and some boards over there. And in his imagination, he wants to know, what should I do with these things? First, the architect or the artist, really, but let's talk about it in terms of an architect because we're really building something with this world. An architect sees the, the finished creation, the finished building, and then he sets about to build it. And this was God with the world. God, before he created the world, envisioned a perfected world without war, without hatred, without hunger. And that was what God set about to build from the very outset. And he made us partners with him in terms of achieving that. And so in that way, we understand that Mashiach, this level of perfection, was the destiny of the world to begin with. It's not just a solution to the problem. Hopefully that's clear, because that's an important point. You know, we Jews believe in evolution in the deepest way, because we believe that humanity is evolving. The question isn't so much where we came from, although that's fascinating too. But the question is, where, where are we going? What's happening to us? And the human species is evolving. And if you look at just the level of technology today, you can see it. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. And if you look at the world, you have to understand that there's another era coming. The world is evolving. But that's the destiny of the world itself. Okay. Let me make one more point. Then we're going to get back to this idea of the engine, okay? 
I tell you that this is the destiny of the world and the goal of all of creation and that we're participants in achieving this with God in stark contrast to another idea, which is the prevalent idea that most people have, and it's completely erroneous. That's the idea that God, at the outset, created a perfected world, and that we messed it up, and that all of history is trying to undo the damage that we did to get back to it, and once we undo all the damage that we did to this perfected world that God made to begin with, then that's called Mashiach. That's absolutely not the Jewish view. That's not the Jewish view. It's very important that you have that distinction in your mind. As Reb Shlomo put it so beautifully, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Right? In other words, we had work to do from the very outset, even before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge. Okay. So now, we've been concentrating on this idea that I just laid out. For years now, we've been talking about this idea. The idea that we're building this with God. Right? But we've been talking about it from our point of view. And that's been very important to me personally, because that's a very empowering, that's a very empowering thought. What am I doing here? What is my, what is my job? You see, so many people think, you know, why should... So what does it mean to take your Judaism seriously, right? So this is what most people think. Well, my parents did it and my grandparents did it, so I guess I'm supposed to do it. And that means I guess I'm supposed to have kids and make them do it too, right? This is most people's viewpoint of what Jewish continuity is or what it means to be Jewish. In other words, all the action already happened, right? And I'm like this custodian, right, who has to like mow the lawn and make sure that spider webs don't, you know, cover the palace. And that's basically my job. And I'm supposed to be excited about that, right? Because there are going to be people, there's a tour coming in from Poland and it's got to look nice, right? It's like, what? But if I understand that the job's not done yet and that the, all the generations have been leading up to this generation to finish the job, and that I'm playing a crucial role in the entire enterprise. Can you imagine there's a building that's three quarters done and you just, you walk away from it? Like, what? You were handed, like, the tools to finish it off? And you say, well, it's taking so long. It's taking so long because the scale of this project is so epic. It's completely epic. You know, when it came to building Disneyland, which was, from a building standpoint, that was an epic project, right? And um, Walt Disney was something like, I I don't know the number, I'm making up this number, but it's not far from the truth. And this is like, I don't even know what year, late 1950s, early 1960s, whenever it was. He was something like $100 million in debt, and it looked like the whole thing was not going to happen, right? This is like, just a king's ransom. And they said to him, you know, Essentially, they, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but they said to him, how does it feel to f- fail, you know? And he said, well, it's hard to call someone who owes $100 million a failure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, I love that. I love that. I really love that. Because, but, but, but let's talk about the world now. Compared, that, that was Disneyland, right? 
What is the world? What is it? It's a trillion Disneylands. A trillion of them. Right? More. More. So if it's taking so long, well, yeah, what do you think? What, what do you think? It's appropriate. It's taking the exact appropriate amount of time given the enormous scale of this project mm -hmm. that we are absolutely essential to. That the entire, every single generation is depending on us for, to complete. Can you imagine that Abraham Avinu, like Sarah, Rivka, Leah, Rachel, are depending on you? Like, can you, that Moshe Rabbeinu is depending on you? That King David is depending on you? That the Baal Shem Tov is depending on you? I mean, what a privilege. What a privilege. So, this is how we've been learning it up until now. But, but, but now we're hearing something different, and this was what was so exciting to me. Now we're getting back to the engine aspect. So again, let's just review quickly. So in terms of awareness of God, Rav Shlomo Karlbach is saying, look, the first level is Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, an awareness that there is a God. But then we go deeper to Moshe Rabbeinu, that Hashem reveals to Moshe Rabbeinu this name Yudke Vavke. And all of a sudden we get in a sense, a much deeper revelation of the extent of God's involvement, continued involvement in this world. Because the big gap that our generation has to cross over is not whether or not there is a God as Reb Shlomo said, and, and, and I think many of us, or most of us, all of us have experienced, people get that there is a God. People get it. They get it. They might disagree on the name and the extent, of, oh, they'll, they'll have quibbles, but they get that there's a God. But the big gap is, if you then say to them, how involved is God with the world? Or is God involved with the world at all? Or is God involved with your life at all? Then all of a sudden, whoa, I don't know about that. That's a, that's a giant leap even for quote-unquote believers. That's why we're not even classifying that as belief. Because unless you understand that there's the God who was, right? They get that. And the God who is, okay, well, I'm alive and there's a world, so I guess he is. But God is also driving creation as Rip Shlomo put it, like a wagon driver steering a wagon, steering the horses. That the world can go in any direction at any moment, our lives can go in any direction at any moment, and that's the idea that the engine is turned on. That God is not just here, but the engine is on, and God is actively alive right now in the moment. And now that's telling the story of the history and evolution of the world, not from the human perspective, but from God's perspective. And that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. Because now I'm not just thinking, okay, I have a project to do, which is the completion of creation, but that God is right there, right now with me. The engine is turned on. It's humming. It's vibrating. You know, I, with this in mind, I remembered something that I was learning in the Or Torah. 
Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, who talked about how, how all of creation is essentially vibrating at every moment. Right? This is a Torah commentary from a couple of hundred years ago. That creation itself has a vibrational thing that's going on every single moment. And I thought to myself, this, 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 I think this is what he's talking about. This is the yiyah, that God will be, that it's alive, that it's not. And what this means in terms of our lives is that we're not stuck. That we're not stuck because there are openings in front of us because it can go in any direction all the time. We can make ourselves stuck. We can, we, can, we can impose a prison on ourselves. But that's of our own doing. That's not necessarily consistent with the fabric of what's going on. Have you ever heard the expression, oh, that guy, he's an amazing guy. He's got to learn how to get out of his own way. Right? Have you ever heard, you ever heard people use that expression? Right? Or he, they're, they're always undermining themselves. Right? Or he's his own worst enemy. Do you ever hear that one? This is what it's talking about. It's, it's, you know, I heard Rabbi Yaakov Deo say one time, he was talking about Pesach. I think he was quoting a, a source, I'm not sure. But he, he said something so beautiful. He said, Pesach night is like a person is in prison and the door to the jail is open and it's up to the person to walk out. But the reality is, is that's every day. That's every day. That's every day. The door to the prison is open and it's up to the person to walk out. You know, there are... Someone told me this, and I mean, I have no reason to doubt whether it's true or not, that um, flamingos, you know what flamingos are? Those, they're those, those tall birds with the really tall legs, right? That you can keep flamingos... Um, uh, captive, essentially, by building a tiny wall around them. In other words, they just look at this like really tiny wall that they actually have the, 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 the height of their legs is such that they literally can step over it no problem, but the presence of that tiny wall is enough to keep flamingos captive. We can't be flamingos! <laughs> I mean, what, what's clearer than that? What's clearer than that? Okay, so, so now I want to take it to the next step, which is this, you know, there are certain major turning points in the history of the world. And one of them is this week's Parsha, um, in Kisisa, which is the, um, the, the Chete Egel, what we call the, you know, bless you, the sin of the golden calf. So let's try to understand that in the context of what we've been developing up until now. So one of the amazing things in Torah, and we won't talk about it too much in depth, I've given whole talks on it in the past, which is the phenomenal um, parallel between um, eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden and worshiping the golden calf after we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's almost the same story. 
there's amazing similarities, amazing, amazing parallels. And it's basically the same episode, especially when you keep in mind that the Gemara says that when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, that we were on the level of Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So, so it raises a big question, which is then why didn't Mashiach come at that point? Right? But remember, remember, before Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, they still had to get to Shabbos. In other words, they still had, as we said before, they still had work to do. What was the work? To work and to guard the garden. And it says that that encompassed, in, in that iteration of reality at that point in time, that was the entirety of the Torah right there. To work and to guard the garden, those two parts were the lotases and the ases, all the positive and negative commandments were manifest in that, again, in that iteration of reality, that was the entire Torah. They had to do that. They had to do something in order to get to Shabbos. And then that Shabbos would have been the Messianic year. So, so we were like Adam and Chava before we ate from the tree of knowledge when the, when the, when the, when the golden calf came and then just brought us down. And it said that we had also vanquished death from the world. Remember, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, there was no death in the world. That's what brought death into the world. Another parallel. Part of our tshuva, part of our fixing of the sin of the golden calf was to give up our immortality. An amazing thing. But we haven't gotten to the point yet. The point is, is that just like before we ate from the tree of knowledge, there was work to do. And we got a test. The test was the snake. The snake wanted to know, did we think we were God? And we said, yes. <laughs> we, yes, we, yes, actually, I do think I'm God. And that, um, that set us back. Mm. Do we think that there's more, or let's put it the way the Ramchal says it. The test was, did we understand that there was no power other than God? And the answer was no. We didn't. We didn't understand that. So. So, we got to the level of Adam and Chava before we ate from the tree of knowledge, and just like they got a test from the snake, we also got a test. See how parallel it is. And what was the test? Because you can't understand the whole episode of the golden calf unless you understand this point. And I'm just telling you what it says in the Gemara right now, in Masech Shabbos. God had the Sutton, right, which is this heavenly accuser, right? Remember, the, the Gemara says that the Yetzirah, the Malach Amavis, the angel of death, and the Sutton are all one energy. It's just one energy of opposition which works for God, because there's only one power in the world. But God tests us, and that's the energy of the testing, and it becomes manifest in different ways. In terms of our physical body, that's the angel of death. On a heavenly level, that's the Sutton. And the Yetzirah, that's our own consciousness. So God had the Sutton show us, this is the Medrash, the coffin of Moshe Rabbeinu. And people fell into a panic 
They said, we don't have a leader. We need some sort of go-between between us and God. And there was mass panic, and they made the golden calf. And, you know, most of the commentators, are, from how I understand it, and the way it's set over, say that we didn't actually believe that the golden calf was God or anything like that, but we felt as though we needed some sort of intermediary. And then that, that just that blew everything. So again, keeping in mind, keeping in mind the whole episode of eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, right? Like the Ramchal asks, the test was, did we understand that there was no power other than God? Right? Listen to how it almost sounds like the same test. God shows us Moshe dead, and he wants to know, how are we going to react? So we know how we did react, but I never hear anybody ever asking or discussing, how were we supposed to react? (laughs) If that was the final test, if that was the final test, what were we supposed to do? So, here's my answer. I think that we were supposed to say, and again, without one one iota of disrespect, chas v'shalom, God forbid, a zillion times to Moshe Rabbeinu, without one, like, atom of disrespect, or lack of covet to Moshe Rabbeinu, I think that we, should, we were supposed to say, you gave us a great leader, He led us out of Egypt. He brought the Torah down from heaven from us, for us. And now he's gone. But God, we have you. I think that's how we were supposed to respond. We have you, God. We have you. And I think that that would have been it. Right? That would have been it. So, so how does this, how does this connect? How does this connect to our lives? How does this connect to the, the engine is running? That God is here right now steering the world in whatever direction, Right? that we have a job to do to complete creation, that God is right here driving the world, and that God himself is invested in his creation on an ongoing basis, wanting to bring it to the next level, and that he's here right now. So what about, so what's the, what's the take home? What's the, what's the point? What's, what, what's, what's, what does it mean for you and me in our lives right now? is that we have to have what's called dveikaskai. We have to have that direct connection with Hashem at all times, cutting through absolutely everything, all of the unreality of reality, to cut through all of the other powers which manifest themselves as powers, to cut through all of that, and to have this core relationship with Hashem, who's always there at that moment, who's driving creation and waiting and saying, which way are we going? Which way are we going? What's next? What's next? What's next? Let's go. Where? Let's go. Where? Where? Let's go. The tank is full. The engine's running. Where are we going? Where are we going? 
What's now? Let's do it. Let's do it. What can we do? Who needs help? What needs to be done? What's on your checklist? Let's go. And to have that direct relationship with God where you're turning to Him first and you understand that's what it is. There's nothing else going on. There's literally nothing else going on in the world except God 24-7. That's the only thing that's going on. And it's not an idea of God that God is some abstraction up in heaven who made the world and who knows what He's doing since then. It's God who's right here, right now. That's the whole idea of the Yudke Vavke. That's the idea of that God was. Yeah, He was. And He is certainly. Well, I'm here, so that means God's here for sure. But that He will be, that the engine's running. So, so now let's just wrap it up. So again, we we said that we were going to discuss the awareness of God. And it's so beautiful when we can see just God running the world. And I think just going back to the donut story for a moment, you know, I was just so happy. I was just watching God running the world, you know. Wow, God, you're, you're you're also feeding that guy? You're feeding me and him. I didn't even know him. I didn't even know he existed. There's a there's a, a, a parable that's given. I forgot who said it, one of the, the great Torah commentaries. And they talk about um, they said that Imagine there's a prisoner, and you know they, they open up the, 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 the cell door from the, like the roof, you know, and they give him some food, and the person feels so nourished. It's like, oh, you know, I'm being fed by the king, and okay, great. And and the the, the prison guard says, what you think God's just feeding you? Do you know how many other people the king is feeding? When we understand the expansiveness of God's ongoing involvement in the entire world, it's so exciting and it's so mind-blowing and the ground is so fertile and there's so much that's about to happen and all we have to do is get out of our own ways and just to reveal God's presence in sweetness and in love and with kindness, and then the light is just going to pour through. Okay. Here are some questions and answers. Yeah. Uh, back at you. Thanks. Well, it's for me. For me too. Um, mm-hmm. Every time I hear you speak, I feel like it's going to like lift me. So high, and you say it with such grace. Um, anyway, this is my question. I feel like I spend so much of my week time yeah. working. Yes, right. right. And Hashem's been so like kind to me, and my work is really busy. But I feel like 
when I hear you talk, I'm like reminded, like, why am I spending so much of this time, you know, working? It feels like when I was living in Israel, living in Nakhot and wearing skirts and just studying Torah, maybe that was like, you know, I was literally just focusing on my meter all day long, right? So, but then you live in the real world, and you kids, and you want to send them to day school, and you have a, thank God you have something you like, and, but we all spend a lot of time working. How does that serve the mission? Feels like it's such a, um, a distraction, you know, right. in so many ways, and then I feel like it's so petty because it's constantly about, like, how to build that, how to grow that, right? And it just seems like, is that a disconnect from, um, you know, this mission of perfecting the world? Because especially in Los Angeles with, you know, especially the business I'm in, but also the cost of living, it just, it, it drives so much of our time. Yeah. How do you do that and feel like you're in service or are you supposed to not do that and live much more hamishly and, and focus most of that time just, you know, on something else. You know what I mean? That's my question. Yeah. So, so, I mean, first what's beautiful is that you, you, you recognize the, the preciousness of your time in this world and you want to make the most of it. So just take a moment to acknowledge that and the beauty of that. Um, the second is that what distinguishes Judaism from a lot of different spiritual traditions. And I think that, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but what I would say is that you can see, I think the truth of Judaism is that it, it, it is so much about the embrace of this world and the elevation of the material and the mundane as opposed to the rejection of it. Um, because, you know, like those posters in your, you know, junior high school guidance counselor's office say, God doesn't make junk, right? Uh -huh. So the physical world is not just junk that's meant to be thrown out. Like if God made it, that means that there's a role for it and it needs to be elevated. And a lot of times when we, unlike say, like in the Eastern traditions where you have someone, uh, uh, the spiritual master who's completely rejected this world, right? You have you, you have, like, people who are working jobs and having kids and engaged in relationships and business. And, I mean, one of the most amazing things is, it says in, in, in the Gemara, in Masech Shabbos, that the first question that we're asked before the heavenly court, after, after 120, after our, our souls leave this world, is, did you conduct your business affairs with faith? In other words, you see so much in that question. One, there's an assumption that you were actively involved in business, that there was no, that there was no problem with that whatsoever. But how did you view it? Did you view it as an extension of your service of God so that you did it faithfully, with faith, meaning in a, in a Torah way, with the idea that you were going to use the funds for, for um like you say, educating your children in Torah and I'm sure giving tzedakah and, and everything else, right? Because if that's the case, then what you're doing is you're literally uniting heaven and earth because you're bringing the light into the world and into physicality and by doing that, elevating it. And that's, that is absolutely one of the primary goals of all of creation. 
So to 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 so we have to get rid of the mindset, which is that um, the Jewish spiritual life is the rejection of material materiality in general. But we have to understand that it's the elevation of materiality. And now within that, there are levels within that. So if you feel as though you want to study more Torah, you can look objectively at your schedule and say, okay, so where can I put in an extra five minutes, ten minutes, one hour a week, whatever it is. You know, Torah is best when it's learned every single day because Torah is like oxygen. And even if you learn literally a minute a day, if you, if you learn five minutes a day, that is, is, will keep this vision going in a real way. Because it says, if you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. That it's a very like unstable like compound. It really is. It's not that Torah is unstable. Torah is the fabric of everything. But its be- belief is unstable. What I mean to say by that is that, like Rabbi Wolfson gave a great example one time. He said that, um, can you imagine a person says, I don't have to eat breakfast this morning because I ate breakfast yesterday. <laughs> right? It doesn't make any sense. Belief is the same way. Belief, you have to feed belief to your soul every single day because it needs it. So, 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 so just to finish, there is no contradiction whatsoever in terms of the life that you're living. It's a very much of a Torah model. Having said that, try to pinpoint moments where you can increase in Torah study and don't overwhelm yourself because if a fire is already burning, like there's a fire burning with you, you don't have to start the fire all over again every single time. You just have to feed the fire. And a little will go a long way. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I, I applaud both of you for distinguishing work from work. I mean, profession from, you know, work in the world, particularly you know, you're in a career where people are often slaves to that career, and yet you aspire not to be. So I'm impressed by that. Um, I've heard you say many times that God didn't finish the world. Yes, it's kind of my theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, why didn't he just finish it? I mean, I've. Right. Yeah, I get it that it's not finished, but it could have been, right? right. I mean, the snake didn't right. have to be there. Right. It just was. Right. Why do you put the snake there? Right. I get what we're supposed right. to do now that the snake is there, but what's so, it doing there? Okay, so so there are probably many ways to answer this. I'm going to give you an answer from the the Ramchal, okay? And it's it's called the um, the bread of shame, okay? So he asks, why did God create the world? Because God wanted to do the ultimate good. So what what is the ultimate good? Well, the ultimate good is God. And he wanted to share the ultimate good, which is sharing himself, right? So he created a world in order to share the ultimate good with himself, with the world, okay? So now, in doing this, if God wants to give the ultimate good to to someone, if someone hasn't earned it, 
and they've just been given it as a gift. There is this, this idea of the bread of shame, that you can't fully receive the good because you haven't done anything to earn it. And God, again, says the Ramchal, wanted to give the ultimate good in the ultimate good way. So he created this world in order for us to be able to earn this good, and then when God shared this good with us, we'll have earned it, and then we can experience this ultimate bliss in the perfect way. So this world was a staging ground so that God could just share himself in a way that we could receive it in the ultimate way. But in order to do that, we had to exert some sort of effort. And now you get into, now that unlocks all sorts of things, which means that if we had to exert some sort of effort, that means there had to be a choice. And in order for there to be a choice, that means that there had to be an obscuring of God's presence in the world. God had to hide himself so that we had to actually make a meaningful choice where we could actually seriously consider the alternative that, that maybe he's not there at all. And that way, when we overcame that and did the right thing, there was something that was being accrued. Now, that leads to the next question, which is my question. So why didn't God just create us in such a way where we could receive it without any shame? <laughs> right? So that solves that whole problem, doesn't it? <laughs> and my understanding, my, my answer to that, is that God is the ultimate giver. That God was giving us this opportunity to become more godlike. And to become more godlike, you have to become a giver. And so God was giving us this opportunity to be able to do something, to give, right? To transform the world. And that this was this training ground. This world is this training ground where we get to refine ourselves, not just by choosing and doing the right thing and thereby making us worthy of receiving in a perfect way, but it's deeper than that. By actually doing the right thing, by giving, we become more godlike. And so God allows us to actually elevate and transform ourselves in this amazing way. And that's the ultimate gift. It's the ultimate gift. So that's, that, that's an answer like according to the Ramachal.